really glad that you're joining us here this morning. I want to say again, good morning to many of you watching online, whether you're part of our community, part of another community, or just checking out church virtually. We're glad you're here this morning with us. Well, as we just saw in this video, we're now in week three in our summer series, our second summer series called We the People. And we understand that when God shows up, the diversity of what he does in a diverse people is unbelievable. It's been an interesting, uh, I would say, summer for all of us. Uh, I love a Facebook post of a friend of mine who said, spring was summer and summer is nothing but storms. Wouldn't you agree? Uh, Interesting thought. Anyone get caught in the storm that wasn't supposed to happen downtown Toronto last week? Raise your hand. Yeah, very interesting. You know, we all were watching the newscast and everything was supposed to be just a normal storm and suddenly Toronto is flooded. People are abandoning their $150,000 cars, right, in the middle of roads. People are stranded in the GO train. Now, us in Durham, by the way, out here, no rain at all. So um, just wondering if God is judging downtown Toronto. We're fine in the suburbs. I just want to say that uh, the people in Burlington are agreed. The meeting house in us, we're good. So no, don't tweet that, please, because people will take it seriously. Anyway like uh, just unexpected storms. And I personally uh, love summer when storms come, but there's been a lot more of them than usual. I was reflecting on that and in our community and going, it's interesting, some storms in life you can anticipate, others you can't, some you can see. One of my favorite things like I've shared before is being up north and watching a storm and the Masokas come across a lake towards you. But we live in a beautifully fallen, broken world. In some storms in our life, in our family, in our community, or in our actual world, we can see coming and others we don't. And since we are a faith community and since we are a Christian community, how we prepare for a storm if we see it coming or how we ride out a sudden storm is absolutely connected to who we actually know God is and what we actually know he's done in our life. Let me say that again, how we actually prepare or live through unexpected storms is absolutely grounded in how well you know who God actually is and what he's already done in you. I mean, that's the heartbeat of this whole summer series. Our theme this year is believe. And as both Pastor Dave and I have shared, it's our intention to round out this ministry year by not only knowing exactly who God is. That's why we spent so much time in the book of John, having a profound, clear picture of who God is through Jesus. But rounding out our year with a full understanding or a clear understanding and believing on what God has already done in us and through us. But like I shared last week, that begs questions very quickly. Do we actually know what what God has already said over us? And do we, if we cognitively, intellectually know it, do we actually believe it? And if we believe it, then why so much of the time do we not live out of that? Like I shared, so many Christians in our church and globally, the vision of their life, the vision for their church is not out of a rooted identity in God. And so the question is, why do we not live from, think from, believe from, this thing that is true. One of the greatest things that's dangerous is we only take it in part and not full. And yet we know that God has done significant work if you're a Christian here this morning. I love the quote that Pastor Dave gave us two weeks ago from Neil Anderson. He said, the most important belief that we hold, that we cherish, that we must know is true knowledge of who God is. 
But the second most important belief is who we are as children of God. Because, and this is the key part of it, we cannot consistently behave in a way that is inconsistent with how we actually perceive ourselves. How you think and how you act actually reflects who you think God is and what He has or has not done in your life yet. So I want to invite you this morning to be open to what God is about to do and say. Many of us here today are Christians and have been Christians for days, months, years, or decades. Others of us here this morning are not Christians at all, and I want to see you're most welcome here this morning. Others of us are Christian in name only, but we don't walk with Him. But if you are not a Christian here this morning, or you are one in name only, I would ask you to ask God at this very moment to give you the ability to listen and be open. Because what I am about to preach over every person here and virtually who is a Christian and what God's done in them is an invitation for you also to have your identity and your life grounded in His love and His holiness and His work. So no matter who you are, hear the Word of God this morning. We're going to be in the book of Ephesians. So you got your Bible virtually, physically. We'd love you to turn there. It's a significant, significant book. Now, we're going to be spending a lot of time in the book of Ephesians, I think, in this coming ministry year. But one of the things that's significant and interesting about Ephesians is this. In Ephesus, this church or group of churches that Paul is writing to now contains third-generation Christians already. Now, I'm a former youth pastor, and I've done ministry for a long time. And I have always found that third-generation Christians are farther or farthest away from the epicenter of original encounter. That either grandparents or friends or uncles or aunts, they're the ones who met Jesus, not one generation, but two generations ago. And, and all of us have to make the decision whether we want to re-encounter God, but especially those in third-generation faith experiences, they need to stop and ask themselves, is this really what I believe, or is this family inheritance? Paul is writing to a community made up of Jews and non-Jews. The first third-generation Christians are now being experienced on earth. And in this letter, within the first 15 verses of chapter 1, over and over and over again, we see and are given with such clarity and with such power, we are painted a picture of who God is again and what He has done and already what has happened within us. Each line we will see and be swept, I hope this morning, into his presence, into his glory, into his majesty, into the reign and rule of God, into the kingdom of God. But we have to choose to have ears to hear. We have to choose at this moment to have eyes to see who we the people already are. We have to be open at this moment to face down any lie that we believe or we hold on to that violates what he has already done within us. See, the more we see who God is, and the more we see who Jesus is, who is the full expression of God, the more clearly we see his work in us, the more we will flourish before, during, and after any storm that is produced in this beautifully fallen world. So C4, and all of you online, hear the word of God today, and be encouraged. Because when God declares something over a human being, when he opens a door, it cannot be shut. Ephesians 1.1 reads like this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's saints or holy ones in Ephesus, to the faithful in Christ Jesus. 
right there. Right at this moment, he says something over us so powerful. He says to the whole church and to each person, the whole community, he says you already are saints. You are holy ones. You are set apart for me and you are set apart for mission. See, every single Christian is a saint. Say it with me. I am a what? That's right. You don't, listen, a saint is not a person who is deeply religious their whole life and when they die, they get into first class with the cool beds that we can't afford in the airplane and we're all in economy. That's not what sainthood is. The whole notion that we see in Catholicism that someone is made a saint because of significant work and miracles in their name. No, no, no. Every single Christian on earth, famous, unfamous, godly and struggling, they are a saint. That is what the scriptures declare over each one of us. A saint means holy one. It means that we are positionally, hear this right now, we are positionally before God the Father, perfect right now. When God looks at you, he looks through the lens of Jesus Christ, the work of Jesus, the perpetual intercession of Jesus. And as God looks at us right now, positionally, we are perfect. God sees us right now as we are fully going to be in the new heavens and the new earth. Have you thought about that? See, at this moment, we are saints before a living God who is perfect. But not only are we positionally that way, it also means that we are called, since we are positionally that, to begin to demonstrate that in our everyday life. Our positional effect has to have effect down here. We are positionally right before God, but holy also means set apart. Well, what are we set apart for? We are set apart to walk alongside God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit and begin to see and continue to see His kingdom come and His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are called to spread the gospel and bring the fragrance of Jesus into all situations. See, we, we need to understand, when you hear that you are a saint, it is a positional statement and it's a missional statement. It's a privilege and it's a responsibility. You don't get to say, well, I'm a saint and not be changed. You need to change because you're a saint. This is what one pastor used to preach. I am not a sinner who sometimes is okay. I am a saint who sometimes sins. And the order matters if you're going to live a victorious Christian life. He says, to those who are holy ones in Ephesus, to those who are saints already because of the work of God in their life through Jesus, to those who are living in Ephesus, who have put their trust in Jesus Christ and continue to walk within him. I love this. Paul is saying, I want to encourage you, remind you, challenge you to walk in the joy you've already been given. I want you to know, enjoy, and be filled with, and stand in the person, the work, the power, the promise, and the hope of one person, Jesus Christ. This is, this is all about him. C4, never forget that Jesus is the heart of our faith. Jesus of Scripture is the center of our faith. He is the roof over our faith, and He is the foundation of our faith. We not only trust in Him, the Scriptures declare that we live actually in Him. One person said, like, roots are only found in soil, and fish only can swim in water, and vines can only come from branches, and birds fly naturally in the air. So Christian life and Christianity is not just about Jesus, it's lived within Him. We exist only in him. Right there, just stop and hear this this morning. Do you see the undeserved reality all of us are already living in? 
that you and that we, we the people, are in Jesus and because we're in him, we're saints? Do you see how quickly this undermines self-sufficiency? See, if you begin to live beyond Jesus or end up looking to the world or yourself or others or evil for guidance or inspiration or strength or influence, you will always end up in trouble because we live in Christ, through Christ, for Christ, because of Christ. He says to you who are faithful in Christ and you who are positionally saints and set apart, He says in verse 2, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, undeserved mercy that has been sung over your life and peace. Shalom, a restored relationship between God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, the anointed one, and you. He says, praise be to God and our Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us, verse 3, in heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Paul immediately breaks out in praise. At this moment, he breaks out in worship. He cries out, blessed is God. This is the cry of worship. God is great. God is worth my honor. He is worthy of all things. He is worth my worship. It actually comes from Psalm 41, 13. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. See, like Anderson pointed out, you need to always start with God, always him first and us second. And so Paul begins to say this in a Christian community. Praise him for who he is and what he's already done and what he's going to do. Oh God, he was saying, I've I've been made to worship you, to hallow your name. I as a human being become joy. I become fully alive. I become fully and truly human when I choose not to. When I choose not to touch or attempt to hold or take your glory. Because I can't handle who you are. I love how Rick Warren summarizes the glory of God in his little book, or big book, The Purpose Driven Life. He says, God's inherent glory is what he possesses just because he's God. It's his nature. We cannot add anything to his glory just as it would be impossible for us to make the sun shine brighter. But we are commanded to recognize his glory and honor his glory and declare his glory and praise his glory and reflect his glory and live for his glory. Why? Well, because God deserves it. We owe him every honor we can possibly give. Since God has made all things, he deserves all glory and we don't deserve any glory. That is why the Bible says, you are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created everything. Paul, as he begins to unpack our unbelievably merciful given identity, starts worshiping God. And then this is what takes place. Watch the transition. This God, the only God who deserves all blessing, turns around and he blesses us. And notice, just throw back verse 3 again. Notice where he blesses us. I want you to catch this this morning. I fully did not see or understand or feel the impact of this until this week. See, what I'm about to declare to you matters to your identity if you're a Christian. It says that he blesses us where? What it, say it loud. Heavenly realms. Now, in Paul's language, the heavenly realms is not heaven itself. The heavenly realms is where God and angels and the demonic are warring over not only the whole existence of the universe and believers. I mean, it's where the battle takes place. 
The heavenly realms is the place where both good and evil continue to wrestle over the soul of humanity and over actually creation itself. And it's in these heavenly places that Paul is actually declaring that we have been made right. From that vantage point, in that space, we are in Christ, we're owned by Christ, and we're blessed in Christ. See, this is where that Psalm 23 gets so unbelievably beautiful for us. The, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, but he prepares a table where? In the presence of my enemies. So many of us have never actually reflected on the power of this statement over you as a normal Christian walking person, let alone the whole church. We learned this last week in Ephesians 2.6. It says this, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Here's the point. Right now, in front of all the hordes of evil who are warring against this church and every church and every generation, Jesus has made us right, right in their face and said, There's nothing you can do to stop it. In the very place where they think they have dominion, we as broken, sinful human beings are made right with God in Christ right in their face. How much of the time do we as Christians feel that the accusation of the enemy has more power than God? I say to you, church, this morning, this is truth, not what they say over you. We are here, not there. So catch this. He raises us up, and he makes us right, right in the presence of the evil one. We are seated, and whether our own heart accuses us, or the world accuses us, or the evil one accuses us, we have the right now to say, because of another's work, I am blessed, I am a saint, I am in Christ, and because he has overcome you through his work, I now stand. That's, by the way, just verse 1, 2, and 3. Verse 4, there's so much more. It says that he chose us. In him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. God chose us. He elected us. He called us. Do you notice that the focus is God's own initiative? It's what God has already accomplished, what God has already started, and oh, by the way, what God will already maintain. Stop and hear what the word of God says over you. We are the focus of God's holy love, we are the focus of God's holy initiative. We are the focus of God's own accomplishments, and we are the focus, I love this, of God's perfect maintenance. Before time existed, before the seven days of creation, the before, the before, the before, God promised within himself that he would choose us, save us, hold us, and never let us go. I want to live my life and I want my identity to be grounded in and held by the hand of a God like that. A hand that never falters and never gives up. A hand that will never let me go. Hold me, Lord, because I will give up on you, but you will not give up on me. That is the grounding of our identity. It's what Paul wrote to another church in Rome. In Romans 8.29, for those God foreknew. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. For new, by definition, means intimately known. It's not just knowledge. It's where we get the verb to have sex from. It's to truly know. God truly knew us even before we were born in the sense that he was choosing to call us. It's not foresight. It's foreordination. 
In the Old Testament, it's the idea that God says over the people of Israel. In Amos 3.2, Only you have I known, have I chosen, have I sympathized with, have I loved, out of all the families of the earth. Paul means that God has come and he has ground our identity in his own work in hand. And again, this is the needed pill that we so need that kills the claim of religion. I am good with God because of what I do. I'm okay with God because I'm religious enough, kind enough. Even a secular person says, well, I'm okay because I'm civil enough. No, we are only okay because of what he has done, what he is doing, and what he's going to do. Human boasting has no place in the economy of God. But for we who know God this morning, this is the absolute best promise we can all have in this room and online. And it should move each one of us to breathless gratitude because it is actually the security we need as our identity is grounded in Jesus no matter what storm we face. If you writhe against the idea that God has called you, then you actually have a problem with the sovereignty of God and you have a problem with being owned by God and that is an idolatry issue for you as a Christian. See, we don't get to stand and say we're okay. We get to stand and say I'm okay because of someone else. Our identity is grounded in this. And why did he choose us? Why did he choose us? He chose us so we get to be blameless. Blameless means it's the same word that we discovered last week. It is we are not dirty anymore. We are not unclean anymore. Now don't misunderstand this. Our sin was not just passed over. Our sin was not winked at or just said, well, you know, things. No, no, no. The consequences of sin were placed on the body of Jesus. Every consequence of everything we've done is placed on the body of Jesus. And so that is why we are blameless. Because when God the Father, who in, in, in his absolute justice and holiness, has the right to bring wrath on any of us, he looks at his son. And he, think about this. Jesus perpetually shows the Father his nail marks. Have you thought about that? Perpetually. Forever, not only in this life, but for eternity, Jesus will show the Father his nail marks. And he will say, they're blameless because of me. There is such power in this. Because if you know that you are blameless, you can approach a holy God regularly, no matter where you're at. We've been called and we've been chosen and we've been made blameless and Paul keeps going, he says, in love. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship or daughtership through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will. You know that word, in love, we've talked about that this year. It's the word agape love. Remember, we talked as a congregation about what real love is versus what we've invented love to be as a culture. Remember, we talked about how agape love is the most extreme version of love. Agape love is emotional, but it's not fueled by emotion. We read about agape love at weddings, right? I mean, this is the only time we usually read passages like this. But they should be read regularly. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Love is patient. Agape is kind. Agape doesn't envy, doesn't boast, isn't proud. It doesn't dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. Agape keeps no record of wrongs. Agape doesn't delight in evil, it rejoices with truth. It protects, trusts, hopes, and perseveres. 
I want you to make the connection today, please. God, because he is agape, is patient with us. He is kind towards us. And since he does not need to envy, he does not need to boast, and he does not struggle with sinfully being proud, and since he never needs to be dishonest or dishonor others, and since God is not self-seeking in the sinful sense, and since he's not easily angered, and he chooses to keep no record of wrongs, and since God never loves evil because he actually is truth, and since he protects, trusts, hopes, and perseveres, out of that love, he calls us. He sets us apart. He, he appointed before the time. He marked out beforehand. And then he says, and out of this love, he adopts us. He adopts us. Now think about the implication of this. Yes, every person who's ever been made is made in the image of God. We are all children of God in the sense that we are under one creator. But most people sitting on earth today are not really children of God. You see, when we meet Jesus, we become children of God. We are adopted. Now, there is great joy and great pain in adoption. And some of you who have adopted others, or you are adopted, know exactly what I mean. But think about why Paul chose to use the word adopted when talking about our identity. See, adoption is saying that someone who does not belong in a family is welcomed into a family, though they have no right, no access, no privilege, and they're brought into a family and they're adopted into the family. And what takes place? They are made equal with those who are part of that family. And God comes along and he adopts us and he makes us sons and daughters of him. See, this again is where Paul is driving more and more that we have equal footing because he allows us to, because he loves us. And God did it out of his own pleasure and goodwill. It was never by anything we did. God is God. And as Luther used to say, God's will has no why. Think about that for a moment. God's will has no why. Now, I personally am terrified at the thought or idea that someone has ultimate power. Aren't you? Like, if you don't really know who God is, he comes across as big brother the U.S. government times a million in the scariest drone program you can imagine. And many people who revolt against God and want nothing to do with God would say, I cannot stand the idea of someone who knows all, sees all, and is in my head. I don't want anything like that in my life. But see, I want that in my life only if the person is love. If he's not holy and he's not loved, then he's the devil or something even more scary. But since God is love, we can trust him. And that's why in verse 6 it says that he does all of this to the praise of his glorious grace, which he freely gave us or has given us in the one he loves. Who is the one that the Father loves forever? Jesus. See, we're included in Jesus Christ, and when we got included in Jesus Christ, we actually get to be involved in the love that God the Father has had with Jesus for eternity. God welcomes us into a love that's within himself, and it is not deserved for us, but he says, listen, I am love, and I am perfect love. There's no shadow in me. There's no sin in me. 
And since these things are true, you can trust me as I sovereignly work out history and I also confirm your identity. God, we see through Jesus, is love. Paul keeps going, he says, in him, that's Jesus, verse 7, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he's lavished on us. We've been redeemed. We've been set free. It's the word deliverance, release. It's the idea of being brought back. You are a slave or a captive to something else. There's nothing you can do. And someone pays for your release. It's the word liberation. And we, as Christians, have been liberated from death. We have been liberated from sin. And the kingdom of darkness can no longer claim that they own us. Jesus owns us. We are redeemed at the core of who we are. And then he says these words. And you and we, the people, are forgiven. It's interesting, forgiveness is a word thrown around a lot in churches. But I was talking to Gary Powell this week and our care pastor, and he is using an interesting definition these days of forgiveness that I love. It's assuming personal responsibility for another's emotional pain and the consequences of another's sin. See, that's forgiveness. And when you understand the story of Good Friday and Easter, and you truly understand that Jesus Christ is not just some guy, but he's God in flesh, and that he comes and he assumes personal responsibility for the sins of the human race and the emotional and physical implications of that, the power of the gospel grows exponentially. Don't you think? No, seriously, don't you think? Look at this. And he says that he has come and he has done this for us. With all wisdom and understanding, it says in verse 9, he's made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Jesus to be put in effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth and under Christ. See, not only does God choose us and give us grace and peace, and not only does he call us, not only does he adopt us, not only does he make us saints, he actually also lets us into the plan. He enlightens us. See, what so many Christians do not understand, and the world absolutely does not understand, is that 2,000 years ago when Jesus cried out, it is finished on the cross, it was not just saying he has come to save us and make us right with God. See, what we see here is this. There is the beginning of a new thing. And what's the new thing? God, through Jesus, is going to make everything right. The new heavens and the new earth. Creation is going to be restored. No more death. No more mourning, no more pollution, no more mob, no more violence. It's all going to go away. And the beginning of that revolution took place when Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus' death was not just to give us a new identity. It was to recover Eden that we had given away. And Jesus, who is the agent of creation, comes and says, I'm going to make everything right. I mean, that is hope that you will never find anywhere else, in every, any religion, any movement, any philosophy, any worldview. Because he's the only one who came back from the other side, so he gets to say what he wants, right? Jesus comes and he's declared these things over us. 
Paul says, in him we were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with his purpose and will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. And you, verse 13, you were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of of your salvation. Do you notice you and we? Paul is actually speaking to Jews and non-Jews. We don't see the power of this anymore, but it's powerful. Paul, as a Jew, a deeply religious Jew, who was brought up in the worldview that his his race only would get in, and maybe a few others if they went through a lot of hoops, he is now saying anyone is welcome to the table who chooses to meet Jesus. Anyone is welcome to the table if you hear and accept the gospel. You know, the word gospel is a profound little word that's also churchy now, but it needs to be redeemed. The word gospel was used in non-Christian senses in this way. When there was a great victory in a battle, a herald would run from the battlefield back to wherever he came from and declare, victory is ours. The only other time, or the most significant other time, the word gospel was used was when a king or queen had a child born that would take over the kingdom, an heir. See, the reason why Paul chose the word gospel is because it's got Christmas and Easter all wrapped up in one little word. Isn't that amazing? That the king has been born, the heir has been born, and oh, by the way, he's the one who's going to make everything right because he's bringing the victory. He said, if you choose to embrace the gospel, you're included. He says, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Right when you became a Christian, God moved in. The Spirit of Jesus moved in you, and, and he is deeply embedded in you, and he is called a seal. Now, in ancient times, a seal could have three meanings. The first idea was wax or clay where they would put something over a document and take a signet ring and then print it in and declare, this is mine. The second one was tattooing, where people would actually get tattoos to declare what faith they belonged to. And the third one was branding, where you actually see animals that are branded so you know who their owner is. Now, you may be uncomfortable with tattoos and branding, especially some of you. Some of you are like, what? Look at me. Look at my sleeves. Yeah. But here's the point. Every Christian on earth has been branded by God, tattooed by God, and sealed by God. Why? Because we are his possession. See, the world rises against the idea of being owned by someone else. Give me freedom or give me death. But we declare, no, we want to be owned by someone else because he's love and we're not. And he leads things so much better than we ever would. Jesus says it so beautifully. My burden is light and my yoke is easy. But you got to be led by someone, right? And so the identity of an average Christian is that we are branded and tattooed and marked by the Spirit of God. And the Holy Spirit is called a deposit. It's the word down payment, an initial payment of what? of what is coming, the day of redemption. See, there it is. Eternal security right there that if you have embraced Jesus and God has called you to himself and you are walking with Christ and you're sealed with the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God is in you as a deposit for one thing until Jesus come back and make all things right. See, once God moves into his house, you can't kick him out. He's bigger than you. 
You are sealed and tattooed. There is no undoing the tattoo with God. And see, why does he say all of this? For one reason. He wants you to have joy. He wants the average Christian and the average community, the every single local church to understand the phrase, we the people, that our identity is grounded in the great, mysterious, now revealed work of God. Because if you leave yourself alone and think of yourself alone and walk your life through your own lens and not God's lens, you will end up believing a thousand other lies that come from your own heart or your own family or a community or the world or the demons that hate you so much because you will not believe what God has said over you. But if you choose to live in the identity you have already been given, the power of these lies crumble in seconds and new victory and power and character and humility will be produced in you, in your family, and in our church because this actually is who we really are. We just have to start walking in it. We don't have to get this. This is done. This is what the scriptures declare over you today. Hear what it actually says over you. We the people are saints at this moment. Each one of us, if we've trusted in Jesus, have grace. Each one of us have peace with God. There is no hostility now between us and a holy God. We have been included in Jesus. He has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Right now, you are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms right now. You've been chosen, called, and foreknown. You've been adopted. This is your birthright now. You actually are a child of God. You are a son and daughter of God. You're part of a new family. You have been redeemed. Redemption is your truth. This is so important as we prepare for communion. So many of us in our walk still do not live like we're redeemed. So many of us, hear this please, think that sin is stronger than the work of God or the evil one's voice is stronger or the work. No, no, no. You have been redeemed. You have been forgiven. You have to work out stuff down here, but positionally we're all forgiven. We've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. We, each one of us, are marked by Him, identified with Him. We are sealed by Him. We are tattooed by Him. We are branded by Him. Why? Because we are guaranteed a future that we don't deserve. We are God's possession, and we have the hope of glory. As I preached a few years ago in a different series, we are not rootless trees. We're not alone. We are not left to suffer Jesus, who sits at the right hand of the Father, intercedes for us, always covering, always forgiving, always pleading, always dealing with our struggles. The Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness, intercedes for us, struggles alongside of us. He loves us more than we love ourselves. He gives us the power to live a Christian life. We are called, foreknown, predestined, justified, and already glorified. You can't lose your salvation. It was never up to us in the first place. We are with Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing at all. Our identity can never be eroded or taken away. We are now and forever saints. We are children of God. We have hope. And no one can bring a charge against us. No one is stronger than the one that lives already within us. And never forget, it's not just about us. 
It's about all of creation. The promise is that God is going to make all of creation right. He's going to take the fragmented, broken, potholed existence we live in and make everything right. We must live out of this truth. We must make decisions based on these truths. We should have this lens and no other. Hope is given to us now, and hope is coming in grander ways. Ground your life here. I asked you last week to spend some time looking in the mirror. Do you remember that? Where I asked our whole church, whether you're 85 or 16, 12, 30, 45, whatever, to sit and look in a mirror, look you right in the eyes and go quiet, And then begin to read off what is declared over you and ask, do I believe this? And also ask, what lies do I believe that violate what God says? I'd encourage you again to go back with this grand passage, 15 small verses, and say to God, do I believe this? Because this, when it is embraced, is the grounding for holiness, hope, joy, overcoming temptation, and the power of God in the church. The clearer Jesus is to you, and the clearer his work is to you, and the clearer his mercy is to you, the clearer your identity becomes. The clearer your identity becomes, the greater power you have because you rely on someone not called you. This is given for your joy, church. This is given for our hope. This is the place we must walk from. What do you say to him? Do you believe what he's declared over you? God of heaven and earth, hear our prayer at this moment. When things are preached like this, so much comes up. Uh, History, pain, beliefs, struggles, questions, theology. But at its root, at its core, here's what we, we ask you to talk about with us. Lord, may this truth that we are grounded in you and all the things that come, come from it and out of it be at the forefront of every person in this church that they begin to speak truth over themselves and refute lies. That they begin to speak truth over others to refute lies. That the power of what we've believed or our family has told us or what the evil one has said about us would be broken so we can live in the newness in life and life abundant as you promised us. Oh, Lord, we pray that you'd continue to do a new thing in us with the greatest and grandest and most beautiful of old truths. We ask this in the name of Jesus, and everyone said with thanks, amen. I'd like you to stand, please, as we prepare uh, to respond. Here's how we're going to respond this morning with communion. Uh, Pastor Gary already talked about the care fund, that this is where we give above and beyond for the widows and the orphans in our own community and beyond our church. And we'd ask you to give generously just in these boxes. But what a, what a right place to respond after a message like that, a communion. Because Jesus came and he said that there was a new covenant, a new agreement, a new standard that was going to be given between us and God through his work. And so communion represents the death and resurrection of Jesus. It represents the forgiveness of Jesus. It represents him overcoming death, the evil one, and sin. It represents one day that in the new heavens and the new earth, we will eat with him and we'll never do this again. And as Paul says and Jesus said, all who are Christians are welcome to this table. 
If you're not a Christian yet, don't take this because you've not embraced the one it represents. But like I say all the time, this is a great place to meet him. If you are a Christian who is well or struggling, you are welcome. If you are on the run from God and unrepentant, do not take this because you make mockery of the one who loves you still and is trying to woo you back. But for all people, all gen- both genders, backgrounds, colors, races, us united in Jesus, you are welcome to come and take communion. And, and today it just will be, you can dip it in the chalice and just say, thank you, Lord. And for some of you, as I've been preaching and you've gone, oh my goodness, I don't believe that about myself. Say to Jesus at this moment, in this communion moment, Lord, because of what you've done, not because of me, I now say yes to what you've done. So Lord, meet us at these tables, we pray. We pray you'd bless these elements. We pray you'd literally continue to transform us in this space and place. Lord, we pray that you'd continue to work out what you're going to do in us and through us. In Jesus' name, uh, amen.